you express your affection to, to others. We've kind of been, we've kind of grown up in, in a culture that's kind of been inundated with like, this is what you do and this is how you, uh, you express love. I mean, we've all been kind of brought up around that, haven't we? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, from a, from a very young age, we, we've sang songs, we've played games, we've read books, we've browsed magazines, we've surfed websites, and we've watched both animated and live action movies that talk about being in love. We, we imagine what it would be like to, maybe at some point in time in our lives, we imagine what it would be like to find that true love or even experience the magic of, of true love's kiss or, or maybe, or maybe plan that dream wedding. Uh, maybe, maybe you were the, the type of person that you had like the wedding all planned out. You just needed to fill in the blank for who the bride or groom was going to be uh, in that. But man, we would do anything. We would climb, we would climb any mountain, we would cross any ocean, we would dive to the depths of the darkest dungeon, boldly proclaiming in the 1993 hit, and I would do anything for love. Man, I worked in a... I worked in this. I worked in this dinky little diner in Central Pennsylvania when I was in when in, when I was in high school, and that song would come on all the time. And I would do like both parts. You raise me up, would you help me? Now, I'm not going to do the rest of that <laughs> for your own sake. But I mean, we love, we love, love, love. We simply love the idea of being in love, don't we? I mean, you know, we adore the idea and, and what it can do for us. I mean, you know, we even have health experts that are, are proclaiming the, the, uh, the values of, of love, that it, that it bolsters your immune system, that improves heart health, that it improves your, your mental state of well-being, and, and that it, can, it claims that it can even help you live longer. I mean, it's euphoric, so we celebrate it. I mean, who wouldn't, Right? We, we throw parties when a, when a man and woman come together in marriage. During these parties, we even try to predict or contrive who will be next by chucking dead flowers and garters. And I'm really not sure what those are supposed to achieve, but we do it because that's the thing that we've, we've done. Um, but, but, uh, but we do this thing because, because deep down, I think that every, every one of us hopes, we have this hope that we will experience a, a love that it's unconditionally accepting and, that's the, and, and we want lasting affection. We love, 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 love the idea uh, of being in love. But, but then there's the, the other side of, of, of this and, and that's, that's love unrequited or love scorned or ignored or even worse. Uh, heinous acts that are committed in the name of love, things like neglect or abuses or manipulations. And in our veneration of this concept uh, of being in love, that longing for white, what might be often fuels bitterness and cynicism and resentment. And, and just like before, we have just as many pieces of, of media, whether it's musical genres or blogs or websites or articles or books or whatever, that, that tell tales of the antithesis of our ideal, a tainted love, a, a twisted version of love that takes whatever it can and leaves the collateral damage behind. And when love doesn't measure up to our expectations and to the fantasies, the hopes of happily ever after turn into happily never afters. And for some, 
For some, we've accepted a reality that says that love just stinks and nobody needs it. And we're far better off without it. But somewhere in between the the fanciful and, and the unfulfilled, there's a third love song that breathes life and truth into our consideration of true love. And its benefits, it's unequaled. But, but it will cost you everything. It, it will cost you everything that you have and everything that you are. And when you truly hear this song, there's nothing else that you would rather give, live, and experience than love like this. Like uh, any modern key of, of, of music, the, the love song, this love song has seven essential notes to it. And we're gonna find these notes together as we explore Psalm 103. If you wanna take the Bible from the pew in front of you, uh, I know the number in that is, is page uh, 485 and it's in the bottom right-hand corner. We're gonna, we're gonna start here in a second. Um, if you brought your own Bible with you or device, I can't tell you what page that's on um, because it's not in front of me. But I know that it's on page 676 in mine and mine has pretty colors. It's even purple this morning with a little bit of red in there. I have the ADHD kids Bible, like it has all sorts of colors in that. And so anyway, uh, let me give you a little bit of background before we, uh, before we dive into this here. But uh, in Psalm 103, uh, this is David, King David, that's writing this. And, and, and biblical scholars believe that at this point in David's life that it seems to indicate um, that, uh, that this is kind of a later point of his life that he had experienced a lot. Uh, he had experienced at this point in his life losses and great moral failure, but he had also received great restoration and forgiveness from God. And we're going to hear his song here in Psalm 103. Let's read this. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his dealings to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows that we are formed how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field and the wind blows it over, over it and it's gone and it's a place remembered no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his, heaven, his throne in the heavens and his kingdom all rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his biddings, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominions. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
And in this psalm, we see David sing the seven notes in the key of love. And the first note is this, that true love is redemptively revitalizing. Verses three through five talk about the removal of sin, the healing of disease, the redemption of of life itself through the compassionate restoration of God. When we truly love, we are full of forgiveness. We work through wounds and we're generously gracious because we have been fully forgiven and have received incredible grace. You know, our, our, we have an enemy that would, that would seek to, to give us a different pers- uh, picture of what healthy relationships should look like. And, uh, and, and often those, those things are focused on, on ourselves. But God has designed his great love to, to, overcover, to cover over a multitude of sins. And, and you know, as forgiven people, we really should be forgiving people. Jesus is very clear about this in both Matthew 6 and 7 when he says that the measure that we forgive or the standards that we judge by will be used for us. Not only that, he invites us into his plan to redeem his world. And this brings us to note number two, that true love relentlessly pursues. Verses six and seven talk about God working righteousness and justice, and that he's, he's making himself known. Not that he's distant, but that he is very, very near. Her name is Annie, and her story is a beautiful picture of God's relentless pursuit of us. In her, in her own words, this, this woman who was rescued from a life of prostitution and, and overdosing, uh, an overdose that should have killed her, says this, little girl lost, thought no one loved her, thought no one wanted her, ran away from her castle, but God met her on that dark road. He said, you can come home now. I'm right here. I never left you. Restored, redeemed, set free. That's my life. I am loved by God. You know, God did something that that no other deity throughout the the human history has ever made claim to and has ever done. Uh, he, He consistently showed himself to his creation, even to the point of stepping into it, walking the paths that we walked. He endured things like temptation and trials and betrayals, but he also enjoyed the company of friends and laughing with kids and eating food and attending parties. This is why the author in Hebrews says that we have a great high priest in Jesus who's not unable to sympathize with our needs. He knows what it's like to walk in the human experience. And what's so amazing to me is that God himself would pursue us so relentlessly that he would give up his very life in order for us to have access to himself. He did something that was more than just a feeling. It's a promise, which is our third note. True love is covenantal. 
Now, this isn't a word that we use a lot in our, our modern language. When we talk about things like covenants, we, we, we maybe talk about things like marriage, or maybe if you're a video gamer, you talk about a, a collective of aliens that are, you know, stuff like that if anyone's played Halo, but, um, but you know, in, in this time when the, the psalm was, this psalm was written though, a covenant was, was the most binding, intertwining, contractual agreement that you could make with another person. In a covenantal relationship, you were no longer your own. Uh, your strengths, your resources, uh, your identity, your, your firstborn child, even your very names were interchangeable with your covenant partner. In a covenantal relationship, my enemy is your enemy, and your enemy is mine. And these conditions, uh, the, the conditions for each of these covenants, they, if you kept them, you would be incredibly blessed because you would have all of these resources at your disposal. But if you broke the terms of the contract, uh, let's just say that it was, it's, it was, it'd be better if you broke up with your cell phone provider than if you broke a covenantal relationship. The, 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 the backside or the downside of this was just, just so, much, so much worse. And, and David writes about this everlasting love of God that's available to us in a covenantal relationship with God. Did you know, did you know that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's not just about a set of rules that you live by. It's not, it's not just that, it's not that God comes in and says, okay, here are the thou shalt nots, but, but God comes in and there are these benefits of living under, under this covenant and they're available to you and I. Did you know that in a covenantal relationship with Jesus, that his strength is yours? Uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, he, he talks about this, this weakness that he had and, and, and he prayed about it and God says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. The strength of the heavens was available to Paul in his temptation and in his struggle and it's the same power that's available to you and I in covenantal relationship with God himself. Did you know that in a covenantal relationship with God that you are given a new name? that you are not the things that you've done, you are not the mistakes that you've made, you are not the sin, you are not the addiction, you are free and you are dearly loved, you are called a child of God, you are called a friend of God, you are called redeemed, you have a new name. In a covenantal relationship with God, these are the things that are available to you. Did you know that in a covenantal relationship with God that your greatest enemy has a greater enemy? that sin and death are defeated, they're destroyed, their dominion is gonna end because Jesus Christ has won. Because we are in covenantal relationship with God himself. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing and this is the reason why I believe that the, the author of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon said, I'm my lover's and my lover is mine. That there's this thing that happens when we, when we recognize that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. It's such a beautiful thing to say, I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And suddenly, when you think about the scope of eternity and things, I mean, aren't, aren't there things in our, in our circumstances in the here and now that, that are diminished when we look at those things, that God actually cares about the things that are going on in your circumstances because you are in that kind of closeness 
and relationship with, with him. And for those in covenantal relationship with God, all of the benefits of being united with Christ. Did you know, did you know that when you are united with Christ, that he, that, that he says that we are joint heirs with him, that God views us as redeemed royalty. There's something so beautiful about that picture of relationships. And it starts, it starts with the fourth note in this life song in the key of love. That true love is vulnerable. Life is fragile. And it's really short when you think about it in scope of eternity. Remember, when David wrote this psalm, uh, he had lived long enough to, to know that you just can't fake it until you make it. You, you, can't, you can't put up a, a false front that, that sooner or later, that circumstances are gonna come along, the, the winds of change in life are, are gonna, gonna blow by and, and blow down the, the front. And sooner or later, the truth will come out and our best chance at living in the truest definition of love is to be vulnerable. He writes that God remembers that we're formed from the dust. That we're formed from the dust. That even the slightest breeze can reveal our truest form. And you know, there's this moment that we see in, in the life of Jesus. This moment of great vulnerability where he's praying in the garden and he's agonizing over what's gonna happen and he's just, he's weeping He's weeping over what's gonna take place. He knows what he's about to endure. He knows what he must do and he allows himself to be made vulnerable for you and I at any moment in that. Think about this for a second. You know, Jesus Christ, Son of God, second member of the Trinity, fully divine, fully man, goes to, through a mock trial. It makes just a mockery of justice. Is, is beaten, he's humiliated, and then he goes to this, this execution that's, that's so, so terrible and drawn out. And at any moment of that, he could have just been like, peace, I'm out, you know, angels, you take care of this thing, we're just gonna salt the earth, we're just gonna forget about this thing and we're gonna start over, but he didn't do that. He loved us so much that he made himself vulnerable for you and for me. And so what this looks like lived out in the life of the Christian, if we're trying to be like Jesus, what this looks like is living lives of confession. And what I mean by this isn't that we sit in like a stuffy wooden box with like curtains or talking to like a disembodied voice or, or anything like that. What I mean is that we confess our sins to God and, and we confess them to each other in Christian community. We, we confess our sins to God because he's the offended party, right? You know, if you, if you do something that offends somebody, who do you apologize to? You go to the offended party. That's the person that you talk to. And so we, we, we confess our sins to God because we want to show, show humility in our relationship with him. But then we confess our sins to each other for the purpose of accountability and to, and to help us put to death things that would separate us from the love of God. But this requires the next note, the fifth. Love is considerate. If we're gonna be people who confess our sins to each other, which, which is a pretty biblical thing for us to, us to do, 
Um, we, need, we need to remember that we are forgiven people and, and God doesn't treat us as our, as our sins deserve or he doesn't repay us equal uh, for, for where we've offended, but he removes our sinful offense from us as far as the east is from the west. And if he does that for us, why would we do anything different for anyone else? Think about this for a second. This is, this is fresh for me here, and, and, I've, and I've got to wrestle through this. I can't preach something to you that, that God's not preaching to me. Um, in, in last week, month, year, have you ever observed somebody make like really, really, really poor choices? Like just really bad, bad choices? And man, like how easy is it for us to like sit back and like armchair quarterback those things? Where it's like, you know, oh, well, if I were in that situation, I would totally have done this and then I would run this play over here and I would have this perfect scenario of how, in my head of how things would have worked out if I were just in charge of that thing if I could just make the decisions for somebody else's life. Can we all agree that that's a stupid idea and we just need to stop doing that? <laughs> can, we, can we just stop doing that? I mean, because if God considered our fallen state and he's compassionate with us, shouldn't we do the same? I mean, this doesn't mean that we overlook offenses, but we deal with them in grace and truth, the way that God deals with us. You know, after all, true love never leaves us in the place that it finds us. So let's be considerate in the way that we treat, treat each other because ultimately, number six, true love is kingdom-minded. Have you ever noticed that you and I are hardwired for things that last? We want things that are lasting. If, if you think about, uh, if you think about like a major purchase, like let's, let's think of like, you know, a, like a home purchase, like you don't buy a house thinking, oh yeah, you know what, in the next year or so, I really hope that I'm buying another house. I hope that something goes wrong with this one and that I just have to replace it. Um, do we do that with our relationships? No, you know, we hope when we, are, when we enter into a relationship with people, we hope that it's something that's mutually beneficial and that it's lasting and that, that it's something that's, that, that goes for the, the long haul. We long for things that last. And you know, the love that we experience here on this earth, whether it's in, uh, in relationships of, of marriage or whether it's in friendships or whether it's in the community of the church, did you know that this is a reflection of the eternal? That, that God gave us these things and he designed us for these things because he wants us to know what we're in for. He wants us to be able to, to see a reflection of what's, what's gonna happen when we are united with him in eternity. And when we follow the rhythm of God's life song in the key of love, we discover that we are Christ's church, his bride, and that we are submit, when we are submitted to his leadership, that she, will, that, that she has his ways in mind because she trusts that they are excellent and eternal. How powerful would it be? How powerful would it be for our world to see God's church truly step in time with his song, living in the light of love? I, I really think that it, that it needs to see that. I, I, think that if, I think that if they did, they'd join with us on the seventh note and that is that true love is praiseworthy. 
The psalm begins and ends in acknowledging the the truth of of where love comes from, God himself. David, he he exclaims at both the beginning and the end of this, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Like, in other words, my soul, the very depth of who I am, you better praise God. You better praise him. Get ready, get ready. We're gonna praise him because he is worthy of it. And David had lived long enough to know that everything that he had, his power, his position, even the breath in his lungs, that they are generously given by God, the author and perfecter of life. The only thing that God desires in return is our affection. And isn't that the most appropriate response to love anyway? And this, this is all lived out in a way that it's not a checklist it's not like we can, you know, go down the list and go, okay, yeah, um, you know, I I, I I did a little bit of confession this week, and you know, I was I was sort of I was sort of uh, considerate, and I I think I'm living in a covenantal. This isn't a checklist. This is this is a, a rhythm of of who we are and and how and and how we live this thing out it's it's something that we continue to do it's a song that's that's meant to be harmonized with and to be belted out at full volume with our lives it's why david again it's why he explains praise the lord all my oh my soul with all my inmost being praise the lord i don't want anything in my life to do anything but sing this song along with you and like any song it's important that we're in tune with the melody that we're singing. Now, as a guitarist, I, I'm pretty obsessive about keeping my instrument in tune. If I play a song, I'm checking it, you know, I'm checking to make sure that I'm, I'm in tune. Because you know that like, that like that slight variation can throw things off. I know when I play like a wrong note on Sunday, like if somebody like looks back at me and was like, you know, are you sure you're playing the right thing? Um, you know, I know that kind of thing. I know that thing can happen, and, and usually that person's myself, and I'm going, are you, am I sure I'm playing that right thing? But you know when something is out of tune, when it doesn't sound right. You know, as, as followers of Jesus, and, and I, would, I would venture to say that we're, we're pretty, pretty open about following Jesus, but... Is our, is our life in, in tune with that? So how do, we, how do we know how to tune our life to this song, this life song in the key of love? Well, I believe that there are some questions that we have to ask. And I'm, I'm gonna invite the worship team to, to come forward and, and play as I ask these questions. And, and, and I want you to, to kind of take in um, what you're hearing. Question number one is, is there something in your relationships with others that needs to be redeemed? Do you need to take a steps to restore something that's been broken? Are you actively pursuing the unlovable or is it easier to hold grudges? Are you walking in and keeping covenantal promises in your relationship with God and with others? When's the last time that you confessed your sins? 
How vulnerable do you allow yourself to be with other Christians? Is there, is there someone that you need to apologize to? Are, are you considerate and compassionate even to people whose sins you aren't tempted by? Is God's kingdom and its work here on earth the single most important thing to you or does something else take priority? Does the song of your life sound like it's in tune with God's song of love for his creation? And these are tough questions. And chances are you're you're listening to these and, and you're asking yourself, like, who could actually live like this? Like, we fail so much at truly loving like that. And this is where the beauty of the song comes in. It's not a solo. It's sung in harmony. It's a glorious harmony between you and the church and God himself and we can't love like this on our own. You see, we need each other. We we need to, to spur each other on as the church to bring redemption and healing, to seek out what sin and death would consider lost, to confess our sins, to live within the promise of our covenant with God, to be considerate to one another and to be focused on God's kingdom work here on earth, all for the sake of pointing back to the one who loved us when we were unlovable. And he loved us like that in order to show us what it means to be loved and to love. Church, I truly believe, I truly believe that in a world that's stuck in the mire of unattainable ideals and cheap imitations, that it's time for us to break out the good stuff. It's time for us to sing. It'll cost you your comfort and your control, yeah. It'll cost you yourself. But it's time. It's time for the church to sing. We're gonna join together in, uh, in this beautiful song, How He Loves. And maybe as you're listening to these questions, you're thinking, you know what? I need help loving like that. And the altars are open. If you want to join together in prayer, there's something that's beautiful that happens as the church as we come together and we pray together and we lift each other up. And so I would encourage you to come together at one of these altars and pray, asking God to show you what it means to love like he loves.